Welcome to Celebrate Poe. My name is George Bartley, and this is Episode 30, Wishing You Were Here. Today, Mr. Poe and I would like to continue our look at some of the various Virginia Springs. But first, we would like to take a look at the development of what came to be called travel literature. Now, I'm not really talking about travel books or catalogs that list prices and make recommendations about where you should stay or eat but literature about traveling and going to various places, often places that most people would never be able to go to ordinarily. Well, hello, Mr. Poe. Hello, Mr. Bartley. I I could not help but overhear you, uh, not that I was trying to engage in the practice of eavesdropping, but it is true that during my earthly life, we did not have access to radio, television, motion pictures, and the internet machine. So one common form of entertainment was travel literature, such as the letter in the preceding episode regarding White Sulphur Springs. And I have another letter. That is wonderful, but Mr. Bartley, could you stop the recording now? You want me to stop recording? Yes, Mr. Bartley. Uh, Of course, I mean, if that's what you want... Well, we're back. Mr. Poe asked me about a special guest for today. A very special guest. I'm not going to say his name yet. Stick with us for what hopefully will be his first appearance of many. Now, before the existence of today's media, the 19th century public was especially interested in travel literature. And I attempted to appeal to this interest by writing many pieces of travel literature for various magazines with subjects ranging from Harper's Ferry in Western Virginia to Stonehenge in England. Mr. Poe, I must admit that travel literature is an area that I did not associate with you for a long time, even when I worked at the Poe Museum. Yes, it seems that the reading public associates me far more with stories of terror, my poems, and to a lesser extent my tales of humor, detective work, or even science fiction not travel literature. Mr. Poe, I did some research on the history of travel literature, and I did not realize it had such a deep tradition. So before we continue with additional travel literature regarding the Virginia Springs, let's look at some really cool travel literature from the past. Yes, Mr. Bartley. When I contemplate the history of travel literature, I realize that could be a most beneficial pursuit of knowledge. Mr. Poe, you certainly are agreeable. Now, I thought to keep it manageable, I would briefly discuss five relatively well-known examples of travel literature. There are many, many more, and I had a hard time choosing just five, but I'm going to stick with five of the best pieces of travel literature ever written. Uh, Mr. Bartley, I I presume I am on your list. No, uh, not exactly, uh, but I will be talking about some of your works of travel literature later on and really take a deep dive into them a much deeper dive than any of the travel literature on my list today. Well, that's good. And you know my supernatural presence will ensure that you examine my works in greater detail when appropriate. Fifth on my list of great travel literature is The Travels of Marco Polo by Marco Polo, a book that was written almost 700 years before your earthly life, Mr. Poe. 
The book came into being when the explorer was imprisoned by the Genoans in 1298 after a naval battle. He had all that time in his cell, so he used that time to dictate his memoirs to his cellmate. The volume that resulted had incredible observations about Chinese cities and customs, especially with vivid descriptions of Marco Polo's encounters with the famous ruler Kublai Khan. True, the book included many outrageous exaggerations, but it has played a tremendous role in defining the Western view of the Orient. Fourth on my list is The Innocents Abroad, written in 1869 by Mark Twain. The book is a description of various places that Twain toured throughout Europe and the Holy Land. The Innocents Abroad makes fun of the difference between Twain's actual experience and the grandiose accounts in contemporary travelogues. It's a really funny book and actually became the best-selling of all of Twain's works during his lifetime, and that includes Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Third on the list is On the Road by Jack Kerouac. The book is a thinly veiled autobiographical novel about a group of young friends hitchhiking and bumming across the United States. The book's descriptions are extremely realistic and its events were drawn from life and it inspired an entire generation of readers to take a jump into the unknown. The publisher had to change the names of the characters, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy, to Sal Paradise and Dean Moriarty. The poet Allen Ginsberg became Carlos Marx. Get it? Carlos Marx for Karl Marx. Possibly to protect the innocent, or should I say, protect the guilty. The story is told that Jack Kerouac wrote the whole book on a large scroll at one sitting in a speed-induced frenzy. Second on my list of favorite works of travel literature is Eat, Pray, Love, One Woman's Search for Everything Across Italy, India, and Indonesia by Elizabeth Gilbert from 2006. So this is a fairly recent book. Uh, The uh, lead character spends four months in Italy eating and enjoying life. The eat part. Then she spends three months in India trying to find her spirituality. The pray part. Then she goes to Bali, Indonesia, where she falls in love with a Brazilian businessman. The love part. Throughout the book, she writes about her thoughts regarding life, relationships, and spirituality while traveling to some very exotic places. The book was made into a movie directed by Ryan Murphy. Mr. Murphy is from Indianapolis, Indiana, and is the creator of Glee, American Horror Story, and Ratchet, so he knows how to make a real impression on the viewer. Now, first on my list of favorite works of travel literature is American Notes by Mr. Charles Dickens, a man who Mr. Poe actually met during his earthly existence. Mr. Poe informed me just a few minutes ago that the ghost of Mr. Dickens will be making a brief appearance today on this episode. There he is. Greetings, Mr. Dickens. This is indeed an honor. From what I understand, you have agreed to read a brief excerpt from American Notes, a book detailing your trip to North America in 1842. Mr. Dickens? Uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Bartley and Mr. Poe. And, and thank you for asking me to appear on my first podcast. 
Uh, this is quite a new experience for me. In, in this section of American Notes, I am traveling by ship on the Ohio River, and I am across from an ancient burial mound in Moundsville, Virginia. I believe that area today is known as West Virginia. The river has washed away its banks, and stately trees have fallen into the stream. Some have been there so long that they are mere dry, grisly skeletons. Some have just toppled over, and having earth yet around their roots, are bathing their green heads in the river and putting forth new shoots and branches. Some are almost sliding down as you look at them, and some were drowned so long ago that their bleached arms start out from the middle of the current and seem to grasp the boat and drag it under water. Through such a scene as this, the unwieldy machine takes its horse sullen way, venting at every revolution of the paddles a loud, high-pressure blast, enough, one would think, to waken up the host of Indians who lie buried in a great mound yonder, so old that mighty oaks and other forest trees have struck their roots into its earth, and so high that it is a hill, even among the hills that nature planted round it. The very river, as though it shared one's feelings of compassion for the extinct tribes who lived so pleasantly here in their blessed ignorance of white existence hundreds of years ago, steals out of its way to ripple near this mound, and there are few places where the Ohio sparkles more brightly. Thank you, Mr. Dickens. And uh, now that you've appeared on uh, what must be your first podcast, what do you think? Would you like to do it again? I can see that I will need to improve my vocal quality on your recording, and and I will proceed with these efforts. Uh, But I feel that the experience in question was much easier than anticipated. In fact, if you are so inclined to ask me again, I would be most eager to appear on this form of media in the future, possibly to discuss some issues relevant to Mr. Poe, such as copyright law and my 1842 reading tour of the United States. And during Christmas season, you could do the complete reading version of A Christmas Carol. Oh, my... It seems that A Christmas Carol is the one work that they all want to hear. Yes, I I guess that's true. But thank you very much for coming to celebrate Poe today. You are welcome here anytime. Yes, Mr. Dickens. I I know uh, Mr. Bartley highly appreciates your appearance at our podcast. You are welcome to watch us at work for the rest of this episode. Mr. Poe and Mr. Bartley... I am of the persuasion that I will do as much. Please proceed. Mr. Bartley, I do feel that travel literature enables the reader to stay at home and fantasize about other places they may find impractical to experience physically, whether it be because of location, one's financial situation, or any other practicality. Yes, to that end, Mr. Poe, Would you read this letter published in 1839 from White Sulphur Papers, Our Life at the Springs of West Virginia? Certainly, I welcome the opportunity. 
We had been traveling for two days from the day we left the landing near Fredericksburg upon the usual route for travelers from the north coming from Washington. We had passed by Charlottesville, inside of Monticello, and through Stanton, and had become well initiated into all the modes of Virginia travel and road accommodations, of neither of which we had found any cause to complain, but which, on the contrary, had afforded us much reason for being satisfied. We had left the last peaks of the Blue Ridge far behind us, and a few hours further ride brought us to the foot of the far-famed Warm Spring Mountain, whose frowning tops had been before us for some hours. We here descended from the stage, preferring to make our way on foot, leaving the driver to follow with his horses at his leisure. As the traveler approaches the mountain, he begins to surmise how, or in what manner, he shall ever be able to surmount this broad barrier of the Allegheny, which rises up before him to dispute his passage. The ascent to the top is about two miles, over a narrow, well-beaten road, which gradually edges around the body of the mountain like a great winding stairway. It was early in the morning, the sun had but just risen, and with elastic steps we commenced the ascent, stopping ever and anon to admire the verdant glories which broke upon us in some new scene at every turn. The road at one hand was studded with lofty trees, overlooking the precipices below, while corpse wood and numerous masses of ill-shapen stone on the other hung over our heads, threatening to stop our progress at every moment. The dew was still upon the green leaves, and we inhaled the freshness of the abundant and luxuriant wild flowers blooming along our path. Among our party, in advance of the rest, were two foreigners, an English baronet from Bermuda, and the Cheval L, a resident minister in the United States. The Chevalier had been over the hills of Tyrol and among the fields of Norway, and his heart expanded as he described to us the similarity of the picturesque scenery, scenery that we were now traversing to the romantic beauties of his land. We reached the point where the road crosses the summit, called the Mountain Pass, and paused a while to take a survey of the prospect we had left behind us. A cool, refreshing breeze sprang up to meet us, and the water from the hands of the old man at the mountain had gave us new life and vigor. We were directed to a path which led to a high eminence where the finest view it was supposed could be had of the surrounding scenery. We stood on a rock where a white flag was waving. It overlooked everything within range of several miles. We looked on for some moments in silence, not even whispering our admiration. Beneath us, as far as the eye could reach, a vast amphitheater of hills were rising above the other, looking in their uneven surface like the dashing waves of a troubled sea in their fury. We fancied we could hear the roaring of the distant waves, and then again we saw the blue heavens seemingly resting upon the long-continued ranges of the same line where we stood. 
It looked to us, the abyss below, like a great crater formed by some revolution of nature into which mountain on mountain had been thrown by some supernatural power to fill up the great chasm of earth. The hour and the day, it was Sunday, filled us with great reverence for all things around us. There was no water view which makes the life of seaboard landscapes, but all was reposing in silent, solemn grandeur as it had been for unnumbered ages. Who has ever been among these mountains and given their picture to the world? Save in this stray leaf of some traveler's portfolio, they have never been written down. This is the land where our poets and our artists should come and see the majesty of nature as it is in our own soil. Far below us, on one hand, we described in the narrow streak like a white pencil mark the winding road by which we had ascended. At our feet, on the other side, were the shining roofs of the cabins and bathhouses at the warm springs, where we were to remain a short while and revel, if we pleased, in the most luxurious of baths. The sound of the horn called us again to the stage, and we were whirled down the, to the steep to the base of the mountain with incredible velocity. The drivers of the stages in this part of the country, mostly young men, are very active and expert and will wind a six-horse team round the shortest curves in the mountains. A merry welcome to you, gentlemen, said the pleasant landlord, as we reined up before the door of the hotel at the Warm Springs, where a fine breakfast was waiting for us. And then we did justice to Mr. Fry in every shape. We made our respects to the fried venison, the fried fish, and the fried chicken. I believe we met this same Mr. Fry in the last episode when the writer of that letter stopped at Warm Springs. On each plate at table was a card with the visitor's name at the beginning of the novelties of this region to some of us. We were weighed in the patent scale that stands in the colonnade, which runs the whole length of the main building here, somewhat after the fashion of the hotels at Saratoga. A drawing room and ballroom are on the same floor with the dining room. This place is chiefly celebrated for its delightful warm bath, and its waters are very efficacious for chronic diseases. The company here is the largest late in the season, when the visitors are returning from the other springs. We went to the bath. Luxury of all luxuries. It is worth a pilgrimage of many miles to bathe in this delightful stream. The bath, over which is a wooden building in the form of an octagon, is about 40 feet in diameter, large enough for 50 persons at a time. The water rises from the bottom to the depth of five feet, in a warm state of about 97 degrees Fahrenheit. But it has that peculiar temperature, which no other water by artificial means can be made exactly to attain. The sensations while bathing are most delicious. The water is so soft, and it plays in a most affectionate manner against the body, if I may use the expression. 
Mr. Poe, I think that's really a hoot, saying, if I may use the expression, to say that water is soft, like the person is afraid that something really feels good. (laughs) That writer almost makes warm springs sound nasty. Mr. Bartley, I doubt that the writer of this letter was trying to be obscene. But let me get back to this description. All the most glowing descriptions which have been given of the baths of Constantinople and elsewhere fall short in comparison with the actual enjoyment of a bath here, which is sufficient to dispel the most obstinate disease. Some persons have fanciful notions as to their mode of entering a bath and their manner of equipment. One young gentleman from the north, who had been here before, had a complete dress made after his own order, a loose gown to throw on and throw off, Turkish kippers, an ornamental cap, etc. He said it was more in keeping with the spirit of the ancients, for whose customs he had great respect. The spring where invalids go to drink the water, which bubbles up from a little square rustic basin, is in the groove, not far from the bathhouse, and covered by a little shed. The water is too warm to be pleasant to persons in the flush of health, but is said to act well on the system. Several little fountains of the same description are oozing up around, and it was said that in the shade of these elms that the sage of Monticello was wont to spend so much of his time, and the cabin is nearby which he long occupied. So I guess you can say, when you're talking about warm springs, that uh, Thomas Jefferson really did sleep here. A party was playing at nine pins on the green. The principal amusement here, besides bathing, and others were diverting themselves with coyotes. We left the warm springs, intending to return again at some day on our way homeward. This is the place where the company meet on the winding up of the season. Friendships begun elsewhere are here cemented. Promises to write are made, and maidens here take leave of their lovers. There are many bright recollections about the warm springs. Six miles beyond the warm, we came to the hot springs. I will get out here, says the invalid. I will leave this place as quickly as possible, says the man of pleasure, for I will not look at the halt and the lame. These springs are much celebrated for their hot baths, so beneficial for persons far gone in strength and deeply affected with rheumatic affections, contusions, broken limbs, and etc. Many wonderful cures are performed here. The days of many a poor man have been lengthened, if not made happier, by recovery. I saw a United States senator who had left Washington a few weeks before in a very low state of health. He was now convalescent and able to bear the fatigues of a journey home to the South. The piazzas of the hotels were filled with invalids like those in front of a marine hospital. Some were limping, some were on crutches, and some were wheeled about like children. At a little distance, walking in the shade of the trees, we observed a very infirm old gentleman on the arm of a young lady, some faithful daughter, we imagine, tending on to an aged parent. There are several baths here of different temperatures, the spout bath, the boiler, and the pleasure bath. 
the proprietor, a physician, is said to be a humane and attentive person and is making extensive improvements each year. We stopped once more on our road at Callaghan's, a great breakfasting house, 13 miles this side of the White Sulphur, at the interjunction of several mail routes. We were here very hospitably entertained by the obliging host, who never differs in opinions with his guests on any subject. Mr. Poe, let's stop there, and in the next episode, you can start with a great description of the White Sulphur Springs by an individual who visited the springs shortly after the Allen family vacation there. Sources for this episode include White Sulphur Papers, Our Life at the Springs of Western Virginia, published by Samuel Coleman in 1839, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by author Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, and Highways to Health and, and, Health, Health and Pleasure, the antebellum turnpikes and trade of the mineral springs in Greenbrier and Monroe counties by Laura Martindale. And of course, American Notes by Charles Dickens and Charles Dickens by Michael Slater. And check out my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. That's celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see show notes and a transcript. Well, thank you very much for making it thus far as we take a deep dive into the life and times and influences of America Shakespeare and how he has changed our world. Join us for the next episode in this podcast series to continue to learn about the Allen family at White Sulphur Springs, some thoughts about how it influenced Poe's works, and, if we have time, the secret bunker at White Sulphur Springs. <laughs>